Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. Where you guys been? Where you been? Oh, I was the one that was traveling. I'll talk to you guys a little bit about that. Lots to get to today. Uh, we're going to talk about, it's that time of year where we see all these lists of the best movies of the year and the worst movies of the year. I'm going to explain why I'm no longer doing a list of the worst movies of the year. Uh, some interesting uh, stories involving Gary Oldman, who says the Harry Potter movies saved him. And also, the pressing question, are the Obamas sending a secret message with a movie that just recently came out? Are they subliminally trying to tell us something? And we're going to have uh, reviews of some new stuff that's available now or coming out soon. All of that and more. But first, the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes. They offer the web design, the web development, the e-commerce, the mobile apps, all of it, and, of course, the digital marketing. All of that will help drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. That's AmericanEagle.com, AmericanEagle.com. Okay, so... Just want to mention really fast, thanks for everybody who's been sticking with me. I know we haven't had a podcast in a couple of weeks, and I appreciate those of you who have reached out and said, hey, stop slacking. Um, it's actually it's a super busy time of year, obviously doubling and tripling up on screenings and putting together all my year-end lists. Also, I uh, went out to California, went out to Hollywood uh, for a few days. It was my privilege to host a series of panels. Uh, it's called Spotlight on Storytellers, and these were panels with the behind the scenes people who work on some of the best TV series, limited series and movies. I've had a chance to do this three or four times now. I think they put them on YouTube eventually. I'll get that information for you guys. I know they record them obviously. Um, so it was really cool. I got to talk to uh, some of the folks who are responsible for like, for example, the, uh, the production designer and set decorator and supervising sound editor, visual effects person on silo. Have you seen that? really fascinating cool sci-fi series silo which has been renewed for a second season also talked to a bunch of folks behind winning time the uh, the rise of course of the leakers dynasty and this was especially uh rewarding and, and cool for me i got to talk to uh some of the folks who uh worked with christopher nolan on oppenheimer uh the composer the department head on hair the sound designer and um ellen Mirajnik. Uh, I found particularly fascinating. She's the costume designer. She talked all about how there was a certain vision for Oppenheimer, how with very few exceptions, he's the only character in the movie who wears a hat and why Christopher Nolan wanted that. But this woman, Ellen is amazing. You guys, you can look her up again. Her name is uh, Ellen Mirajnik. She has been in the business for a long time and she was the costume designer who put together the Gordon Gecko look for Michael Douglas in Wall Street and uh, Sharon Stone's outfits for Basic Instinct, among others. Uh, I told her she was an icon and she had the, she responded, who am I to argue with you? I kind of love that. Okay, this is that time of year when you're seeing a lot of articles about the best movies of the year, but also the worst of the year. And I, I did both and I continue to do the best movies of the year and best uh, TV shows of the year. As far as the worst of the year, I did it for years when Roger Ebert and I were doing our show 
we did two half hour specials to wrap up uh, the calendar year, the best movies of the year and the worst movies of the year. Uh, they were almost always the two most highly rated uh, shows of the year with the best uh, movies of the year, sometimes coming in second to the worst movies of the year. Let's face it. People they kind of love to, to really go after uh, the bad stuff. And, you know, Roger even wrote a book called, I hated, hated, hated this movie. So I, I'm not saying I'm above it by saying I'm not doing it anymore. I just decided in recent years, and my editors, by the way, at the Chicago Sun-Times, suntimes.com, thank you very much, uh, they were all for me continuing. They 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 got a kick out of, you know, and let, the truth is, it's sometimes easier to write about the worst movies than it is about the best, because when it's a masterpiece, if it's three and a half or four stars, you really, I spend a lot of time really, you know, trying every possible way to tell you guys why I think this is great, why you have to see it. Uh, with the worst movies, it comes out easier. It always does. But here's my feeling. And and again, Variety's doing it. The Variety list is getting a lot of attention because they've got uh, Asteroid City on their list, uh, which a lot of folks think is one of the better movies of the year. And then some of these, and then Entertainment Weekly did 10 Best and 4 of the Worst, and they're mentioning certain films that I, again, kind of agree with were terrible. And I'm never, ever, ever going to hold back in reviewing films. I think you guys know that if you're listening to this podcast, if it's a one star or a zero star film, if it was two big thumbs down back in the day, uh, I always tell this story when people ask, well, you know, did you ever feel any pressure from the studios? Disney owned our show in the later years. Uh, and I always tell the story that, you know, Michael Eisner at the time was running Disney and his son directed a movie. And I gave that movie a thumbs down on the show. And to the credit of Disney and Michael Eisner, I never heard a word from them. We never, ever heard from Disney about reviews of anything. They they firmly believed in the separation of church and state, if you will. My feeling now is that I'm going to give the bad review when the film comes out. It's very easy. Things have changed so much too. It's really easy to look up my reviews, either on the Sun-Times website, the stuff I do for the ABC affiliate on a show called Windy City Weekend here in Chicago. It's out there and it lives on in a way that reviews 20 years ago really didn't. Now, of course, you could look up, you know, stuff and you know, online even 20 years ago you could. But uh, when we would do the worst of the year show, it was nationally syndicated and millions of people saw it. But then we've never repeat it. We'd move on. We'd look up that stuff on YouTube. But now stuff lives forever. And if you want to see what I thought of some of the worst movies of the year, all you got to do is go to suntimes.com and you can start scrolling through the reviews. And I think bringing it up again, I just personally, I'm not into it anymore. Now over at Barstool Sports, our friends at uh, Barstools, uh, Chris Castellani, want to make sure I got that right. CC, C squared, Chris Castellani. He wrote a piece uh, saying that it's nonsense that uh, there's any kind of a movement not to do uh, the worst of lists. Uh, he notes that, you know, on Twitter now you'll see a lot of people, including a lot of people in the business saying, hey, man, why you got to do this? Why you got to bring this up? Hundreds of people worked really hard on this movie. You already gave it a negative review. Why you got to do it again? Chris makes the point that, hey, you know, if they worked really hard, that's great. We respect that. Um, but, you know, if they're terrible, people have every right to, to bring it up at the end of the year. And they, and they do. I'm not saying that Variety or Entertainment Weekly or anybody else who does the worst movies of the year year and stuff. I don't think there's a, the damn thing wrong with it. It's not unethical. It's not immoral. It's not mean spirit. It's just something I'm personally not going to do anymore. I also feel, and I, listen, I'm not trying to say I'm the big top dog critic, but I've done this for a long time. 
a lot of people, I hope at this point, uh, will know who I am, especially if they're in the business or they're ardent movie fans. So I also feel like, geez, you know, you can see my negative reviews to kind of come back feels like piling on, you know, in that same vein, I've heard from people saying there's rankings, there's different uh, websites that will show you uh, what critics think about movies, not just Rotten Tomatoes, but I'm talking about like they'll, they'll aggregate everything and say, here's here's a film critic like Richard Roper, for example, and that's me. Um, that's why I'm using me as the example in on my podcast. Uh, they'll say, uh, oh, you know, the average critic, you know, the, the median, whatever the damn mathematical calculation is, uh, gives positive reviews, let's say, to 68% of movies. And Roper gives positive reviews to 74% of the films he reviews. Those are, I, I just threw those numbers out there. I know that, I do know that my positive reviews there's a higher percentage of, of positive reviews coming from me than a lot of other critics mainstream critics not not by a lot but it's a little bit higher and here's another reason for that formula guys every week when i'm deciding which movies or tv series to review uh my editors at the sun times and i work with studio publicists and streaming publicists like 40 different uh platforms and studios to figure out and go over the calendar what's going to come out now for example i'm recording this right before the holiday break we all know there are big big movies coming out right uh, the color purple uh ferrari uh george clooney's got a movie called the boys in the boat a lot of awards contenders are, are coming out the iron claws getting a lot of attention american fiction uh these are the films that are coming out now every week even during the summertime in the spring, of course, there's always every week, there are two or three films I know I'm going to review and limited series as well and streaming series, big ticket things, you know, whether it's Ted Lasso or Only Murders in the Building or, or things like that. But then there's a whole other tier of smaller series and lesser known films and documentaries and independent films. And as I go through that list and, you know, when people tell me how much they envy my job and I get that, and they say, I want your job. I explain to them that, for example, for the series finale of The Crown, which I believe was 10 episodes, that's more than 10 hours right there for one review. And then I have to do the research on the review. So the only way for me to determine whether or not I'm going to review something is to watch it. A lot of time is spent watching things that I end up not reviewing. And here's why. At this point in my career, if I have a choice between reviewing a film, a smaller film or a documentary that I really loved and one that I didn't love, I choose to highlight the positive review. I think, again, at this point, people send me their films, studios send me their efforts. So sometimes they're not necessarily small films. They're just not giant blockbuster material. They've got a lot of familiar names in them. Uh, it's quality material, but something didn't work out. And I'll say, why do I want to bring attention to this movie, which, by the way, might only get six or seven mainstream major reviews nationwide? Why am I going to bring attention to something just to shit on it? That's my feeling. I'd rather champion something smaller, a cool documentary, uh, a littler horror film or an independent film, a first time effort from a filmmaker. It just seems to me like if those are the choices, I would rather tell you guys, maybe point you in the direction of, of something that's really cool and worth seeing than saying, hey, you probably never heard of it. But by the way, it sucks. So that's sort of the same philosophy I have for best of the year, worst of the year. Okay. I like this story. This is another one that kind of gives you a glimpse. Uh, in fact, the next two stories kind of take us behind the scenes in the business. So in a recent interview, oh, it was on the Drew Barrymore show. I like, we like to give our credit where credit is due on the Drew Barrymore show. Uh, the great Gary Oldman said that he is super grateful for the Harry Potter and Batman film franchises 
because they helped him. They saved him in his career and his personal life. He said the acting jobs were actually kind of few and far between for a brilliant, but you know, quirky and older actor. But then he got these two franchises and became a fan favorite in these uh, with genre fans. And, you know, Oldman said, I was 42 years old. I woke up divorced. I had custody of my boys. That was hard because he was filming all around the world and then coming back home. But he said that Harry Potter and Batman meant he could do the least amount of work for the most amount of money and then be home with the kids. And I love that. Um, it, it reminds us of something that all of us, even those of us who are sort of in the industry, or at least covering the industry, sometimes forget is that these are human beings with lives and families and uh, other interests, hopefully, than acting, directing, writing, et cetera. And we look at the filmographies, you know, all that stuff that you can get on IMDb or whatever of certain actors, where we talk about their careers, and you're like, wow, they were doing everything for a while, and then they almost did nothing for six years. What the hell's wrong with them? Or why did they choose to be in this project? And you know, I had an interesting conversation with a, an actor who happens to be a really good friend of mine. It was off the record, so I'm not going to mention who he is. We were just hanging out. But he talked about the fact that, like, you know, he's got uh, a wife and kids. She works. He works. Uh, the kids go to schools. They have a mortgage. They have a life. Uh, he's got relatives. He tries to help out. And sometimes he takes a job because he needs the money. Working actors. And we we saw a lot of this uh, in the coverage of the SAG after strike where, you know, it was continually pointed out that, you know, it's 0.001% of the actors who are the famous Six, you know, hugely successful millionaires, and most don't make a living wage, and many are in the in-between area where they they work from job to job. And even if you get a TV series, even if you're you know the fourth lead on a Tom Cruise movie, that doesn't mean you have five homes. It means sometimes you're making a very good living. It means other times, you know, you you then go months between jobs. So when actors are looking at roles, like Gary Oldman, for example. You know, it's all noble and good to say, well, he could go to the stage and he could do, you know, smaller films and all that. But the guy had kids, has kids, you know, has a life. And you take jobs sometimes for the money. I remember Michael Caine famously, who's a great actor, speaking of the Batman movies, and um, has done brilliant work, but has also been in as much garbage enough to fill a year-end worst of list by his own admission throughout his career. Just some dreadful films. And he often says, he has said this on those tapes he does and the, all those seminars and stuff. He says, so, you know, sometimes I'll take a job in the winter because it's in Australia or in the Bahamas. <laughs> so there are a lot of considerations that that go into what kind of roles you take, what kind of roles you're offered, and, and what kind of roles, in the case of Gary Oldman, saved his life. All right. This is another, this is a story I saw in the New York Post, but this has been getting a lot of traction uh, on social media where people are reading a lot into the movie, Leave the World Behind. Uh, this is, by the way, I think this is a fantastic film. It's a Netflix film. It's a post-apocalyptic, actually not post-apocalyptic. It's in the middle of uh, the, the apocalypse is just happening. It's a thriller. It's a psychological film. It's a, it's a social, I don't want to say satire, but it sometimes has almost a dark comedic take on uh, questions and, and issues of class and race. Uh, the film has an amazing cast. Mahershala Ali, Academy Award winner. Two times Julia Roberts, Academy Award winner. The great uh, Ethan Hawke, Kevin Bacon is in the film. So the setup, if you haven't seen the movie, is a family goes on a quick spur of the moment vacation at a beautiful rental house on Long Island. And then uh, a man and his daughter show up claiming that 
this is actually their home and they, they rented it to them, but they need to stay here because there's this huge blackout back in the city in New York. And now you've got these two families who don't really trust each other. And there's this blackout and technology glitches. And it seems like maybe the world is at war, but we're not sure. And then it goes from there. So a lot of folks, or at least some folks are saying that this is actually a message film about how, certain conspiracies are going to come true and how the tech world and uh, different types of kind of high tech weapons will be the end of us. So uh, for example, uh, New York post uh, story quotes, uh, somebody on X formerly known as Twitter, it's happening. They even told us the countries that'll be doing this. We're at the scramble, the enemy stage in real life. Other viewers interpreted the movie as not even being fictional. People are saying this could happen tomorrow. A lot of this is coming because Michelle and Barack Obama's production company is one of the production companies on the film. So people are saying that Obama, the Obama, Michelle and Barack are sending signals and telling people that this is how the world is going to come to an end because they're the executive producers. Okay, first of all, uh, it's tinfoil hat crazy shit. Um, there are messages and there are warnings in the film as there are in almost every apocalyptic thriller about how things could, you know, go haywire. But this is a movie that is based on a 2020 novel uh, by Ruman Alam. And then it's it's directed and written and produced by Sam Esmail. Sam is the uh, creator of Mr. Robot. He's done a lot of other great stuff. Very talented filmmaker. As the director, writer, and producer of the film, Sam Esmail is the primary author of the movie. Now, he has talked about how President Obama told him a few, gave him a few notes, and told him mainly how the government would react if there were some sort of technological uh, hack and some sort of uh, complete uh, blackout where there's no television, no phone service, no internet, no nothing. Told him about that. But he, the idea that the Obamas are sending out some sort of messages. First of all, they, if they want to send a message, they kind of have platforms to do it. But conspiracy theories, all, theorists always like to believe that it's always being done in a special way that only they can recognize. But what I want to get into here, folks, about this before we take a break, more than anything else, is the misunderstanding that a lot of people have about what it means to be a producer on a movie. Now, when you're really the producer of the movie, the hands-on producer, uh, it's a huge thing, and there are a lot of great, talented, creative people, including a lot of actors and directors who become producers. The producers of the film are the ones who get the Academy Award when it gets best picture. It doesn't go to the director because they have best director, but the best picture. So like when Argo won, Ben Affleck, even though he directed it and didn't win for directing, he he has an Academy Award because he was primary producer. And the rules with the Academy are, I believe you have to limit it. I want to say two. It's three at the most, but you can't have all 17 people who have producing credit. They, The production company, the, submit, the people submitting for the Oscar must decide who the real producers are, who really produced the film, was there from the start. You can get producing credit for a million different reasons. Sometimes it's a vanity thing that actors get. Sometimes it's just somebody who put up a whole lot of money and wants to see their name in the credits. That's why there's uh you'll see sometimes PGA producers guild of America next to certain credits. You won't see it next to others. It doesn't mean the others didn't do the job, but there are different types of producers. The Obamas 
yes, the production company was involved. And yes, they are, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six. They're about 12th build when it comes to Barack and Michelle each get an executive producer credit on this film. I'm counting right now again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 different individuals are credited as either executive producer, co-producer, associate, uh, associate producer, uh, just producer, or uh, something else with producer in the in the credits of this film. So just remember that. You, you'll notice when you watch the closing credits or sometimes the opening credits for a film, and you'll see how many people are, are listed as the producers. So this is a Sam Esmail production, if you will, uh, as the writer, director, producer. He's primarily responsible for Julia Roberts. It's also a producer on this film. And at this point in her career, she's PGA. She's, you know, she's probably pretty hands-on. I know she has been in previous projects. My guess is that they didn't all work in concert so that Barack and Michelle could send out secret messages about the end of the world. So leave the crap behind and watch Leave the World Behind. All right, let's uh, hear from uh, me about Portillo's and then we'll uh, talk about a few current and upcoming releases. All right, it's time to tell you about Portillo's, the greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're ever having, ever in your life. Let's talk about the hot dogs and all the famous Chicago ingredients. They'll do it for you so you don't have to worry about getting it wrong. That includes the poppy seed fun. Then we could talk about the Italian beef, the sausage, and the fries, the salad, the chicken, you name it, all topped up, of course, with the legendary Portillo's chocolate cake. It's fast casual. That means it's better than fast food. You can sit down if you go to one of the restaurants, but it's still super casual. And you can order anywhere in the country via Portillo's.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Once again, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends from Chicago about it. Portillo's.com. Okay, thank you very much, me. I uh, want to talk about a few things that are coming out or have come out. Let's start with The Family Plan on Apple TV+. Plus. Oh, hey, Dan. Happy anniversary. Dan, my husband, he's an amazing dad. You almost ready to go to size 4S, huh? I use so big. Look at the big muscles. I just wish our lives were bigger. Call in, everybody. When I'm found. What was that? A little pothole. Maxie's been up the whole time, by the way. Before I met your mom, I was a covert assassin. I escaped that life, and now they found us. <laughs> <laughs> what the? Look at you playing the family man. I'm not playing. This is my life. Hey. I'm kind of into spontaneous dance. This is the one you've probably seen. There have been 8 million commercials about this. Mark Wahlberg, uh, who has now reached that sort of, uh, I don't know, how do you put it? Eddie Murphy, Kevin Hart, Adam Sandler stage of the career where not necessarily, you know, I don't want to say Adam Sandler because he does do a lot of challenging fare. But in a lot of cases, these guys are just doing stuff that's fun and easy to do and kind of in their comfort zone. 
maybe not as challenging as the roles they had earlier in their career. So Mark Wahlberg plays a family man. He's a Buffalo-based used car salesman. He's married to a physical therapist who's played by the wonderful Michelle Monaghan. They've got three kids, two are teenagers who, are, of course, are brooding and resentful. And then the adorable little toddler baby. Uh, and it seems like he's got this very boring, dull, ritual-dominated life. They have Taco Wednesdays. He and his wife only have sex on Thursdays. They celebrate their anniversary at the same amusement park every year. But it turns out, in a surprising twist, it's not surprising if you've seen any of the ads or the trailer, that he was formerly a hitman. And now his past is coming back to haunt him. And it's played for laughs, which is kind of weird, quite frankly. Now, we've seen the story of the former hitman who disappears from the grid, changes his identity, and forges a new life. We've seen this in movies like A History of Violence, which is a great film from 2005, if you haven't seen it. And just a couple of years ago, remember uh, Nobody with Bob Odenkirk, which became a kind of a surprise uh, smash COVID era hit or right around the end of the, the worst part of COVID. Anyway, but those were played, you know, especially uh, History of Violence, very, very, you know, as, a, as films of substance. Uh, to to turn this into a comedy, and you know, sort of a similar plot in True Lies, the James Cameron movie with Arnold and Jamie Lee Curtis, and and and, and different variations. I mean, have been done, but this one's almost purely a comedy. But then it has like a lot of casual violence. It takes to takes us to Vegas, and there's a shootout in a casino with people running all over the place, which seems like an incredibly tone deaf scene to play given the current environment. It's not terrible, but it's really dopey and a, a misfire, if you will. And just the, the whole premise of this to me is it's one of those things where you're like, I don't know how this got made. So there you go. Uh, it's called uh, The Family Plan. Uh, another film, now this one much better and earnest, I think, and uh, well-made film, but didn't quite do it for me. It's called The Boys in the Boat. They're announcing the team today. Are you going to make it? We rode out of need. Come on, boys. The need to stay in school. The need to eat, to sleep. We got to keep these right as long as we stay on the team. Washington Huskies coach is bringing an inexperienced boat to competition. They said we couldn't compete with the richest schools in the nation. The Washington boat has taken the lead. Washington has done it. I got nine seconds under the course record. Olympic year this year. Olympic year? I didn't realize. That bunch of kids load like no one else that's ever come through here. They said we couldn't beat the Germans. We gotta beat those other schools first, but coach says we have a shot. Maybe we can roll as a team. Roll for your country. Roll for each other. For all the people who never believed in you. As one. As one. This is uh, from director George Clooney. It's based on the true story of the University of Washington's uh, rowing team. Uh, a bunch of ragtag, uh, either they were either working class or dirt poor. This is right in the middle of the D Depression in the mid-1930s. And uh, the JV team actually became the champs of the conference or the tournaments and everything and went to the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Very inspirational story. There was a great book about this real-life story. Uh, came out about 10 years ago. It's based on that. But this is, gosh... You want to talk about a film that just checks off all the marks on the underdog sports movie, you know, from the rousing score to the stoic coach to the, uh, you know, corny romance that's right out of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and, you know, the truth is rowing is a really, really tough sport, and I really respect it. And, you know, to get eight 
uh, rowing crew members working in sync is poetry and it's grueling and it's amazing doesn't necessarily make for the most exciting visuals there's only so many overhead shots you can have and so and it's, it's beautifully filmed the cinematography is wonderful but you know again all due respect to crew and rowing and eight man and there's a bunch of other different types of rowing there's probably a reason why it's, you don't see it on tv a lot as opposed to you know baseball and football and basketball and hockey and tennis and volleyball and pickleball and poker because this just doesn't have the inherent dramatic value so a misfire from george clooney not bad if you're just looking for some comfort viewing uh sports underdog movies but not great either guys also want to mention ferrari if you get into one of my cars you get in the wind slow and so you're going broke. How? You spend more than you made. So what do I do? Win the Mille Milla, Enzo. Or you are out of business. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. At the same moment in time. Enzo. with uh adam driver this is from michael mann the director of, of thief and heat and so many other great films and it's a it's a look at uh enzo ferrari the founder of the legendary uh automaker uh, what i like about this film period piece film and enzo ferrari's had the, you know had this amazing career he's gone now and his family continues to have a prominent role in the company but it focuses on just a three-month period in the life of Enzo Ferrari, which I think was a wise choice by Michael Mann. It's 1957. It's a time where the company had been around for 10 or 12 years, but was actually still really very much a boutique car-making company, and they weren't making money. And Enzo was concentrating primarily on the race car part of it, not the commercial car part of it. They're facing bankruptcy. He's also involved in very complicated uh dynamic personally because he's married to his his wife laura who's played by penelope cruz who might get nominated for best supporting actor she's great in this uh they have this uh, kind of on and off passionate but sometimes hate-filled relationship they're both deep in mourning because their son has recently died but then he's got a whole separate life and this is all based on true stuff enzo ferrari had a, a mistress if you will for many 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 years and a son with her son who by the way now is vice chairman of ferrari but at the, in the time of the movie he's 10 years old and then it's also about him recruiting this team of racers for this legendary race in italy which ended in tragedy and criminal charges and a lot of everything was happening for enzo ferrari in the summer of 1957 adam driver you know this is the second film after house of gucci where he he kind of affects this i don't want to say it's a cartoonish italian accent but it's not you know, it's not the most authentic. And the casting is a little curious in this film. He's good, by the way. He's really good. He captures the essence. He's 20 years younger than Enzo was at the time. He doesn't look anything like him, but he captures the essence of the guy who was like a, a movie star himself, the way the press tailed him, the way the people of, of Italy thought of him. Uh, and he captures all that. He captures his bravado and his innovation and his obsession and also the fact that he pushed his racers and his cars past the limits 
on the quest to make Ferrari a legendary name, which is it has become. So Adam Driver, I, I thought was great. Penelope Cruz, I mentioned, was terrific. And listen, we've seen a lot of movies, especially recently, whether it's Gucci or Napoleon, where nobody is from the country they're of the characters they're playing. And you either go with it or you don't. You go with Joaquin Phoenix as the French leader, Napoleon, or you don't, right? But in this movie, there, there are some casting choices. Patrick Dempsey, who I love, plays a veteran Italian driver. And the minute he comes on screen, you're like, but that's Patrick Dempsey. And Shailene Woodley playing... Uh, the mistress, the girlfriend, if you will, the longtime partner of Enzo Ferrari. I mean, she's about as authentically Italian as going to the Venetian in Las Vegas. You know what I mean? I mean it's just, she, listen, she's a good actress. She's done good stuff. But I, it's insane to me that that's who they cast in that role. And she kind of tries to sound like she's Italian, but kind of doesn't. And basically, it's just Shailene Woodley it's odd it, it takes you out of the film so it's a good film solid film not a great film the best thing about it are the racing scenes they recreate this legendary race and some other scenes and some some horrific crashes in a way where you know you're seeing a combination of practical and, and visual effects but you can't tell the difference and you're not worried about that because of the way it, it hits you with a gut punch so good stuff with ferrari not so much with the boys in the boat stay away from the family plan uh that's gonna wrap it up for this edition of the Richard Roper podcast, I'm I'm kind of hesitating because I got all this other stuff I want to get to. But that's enough for today. You've had enough of me. I've had more than enough of you. Just kidding. You guys are the best. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll talk again soon. Promise.